Hey guys, Matt here. Before we begin this episode of Anthology, I just want to mention that we are currently running a contest where you can win a free Anthology t-shirt. The contest runs from now until January 1st, 2018. If you want to enter, all you have to do is leave a rating and review of the podcast on iTunes or on Stitcher. Take a screenshot of the review and email it to matt at obsessiveviewer.com with the subject line Anthology T-Shirt Contest. On January 1st, I'll randomly select a winner from the entries and we'll get a free T-Shirt mailed to them. We'll be accepting entries until G- uh, until December 31st at midnight, so make sure you get the email in before then. Thank you guys for listening and enjoy this episode of Anthology. You're traveling through another podcast. A podcast not only of reviewing and discussing, but of discovery. A journey into a wondrous show whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the RSS feed up ahead. Your next stop, Anthology. Hello and welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. If this is your first time listening, Anthology is one man's examination of the Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer... Each podcast, I review one episode of Rod Serling's iconic series and round out the show with a bonus review of a movie or show related to the week's main topic. I also cover modern anthology science fiction shows such as Black Mirror, Dimension 404, and the upcoming Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams in bonus episode review series. You can find more of Anthology as well as a full episode archive at anthologypod.com. And if you want to contact me, you can use the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod, tweet me at ovanthologypod, or send an email to matt at obsessiveviewer.com. And today on the podcast, I will be discussing a most unusual camera. It's the 10th episode of the Twilight Zone's second season, and it originally aired on... I didn't put it in my notes. <laughs> December 16th, 1960. And for this week's bonus review, I'll share my thoughts on a night, or I'm sorry, a 2014 independent science fiction film by Bradley King titled Time Lapse. And uh, just right off the top, I do know that last week I said that I was going to be reviewing um, Visit to a Small Planet. Um, and that was because it also featured... Um, an actor from, from this episode of the twilight zone. But after seeing a most unusual camera and knowing that the movie time-lapse was on my radar for a long time and had a very, very similar premise, I couldn't pass up switching, switching the, uh, uh, bonus review. So hopefully that didn't cause any problems. Um, but before I get to the main topic and the main episode and everything. I do have a few things to go over. Um, it's been a very busy week and you'll see why here in a moment because a lot of news has broken, um, over the last week. But first I want to give a little bit of feedback or, uh, uh, read a little bit of feedback from last week's episode in which I reviewed, um, the trouble with Templeton and my bonus review was a special Patreon bonus review of, uh, tw- uh, sunshine by Danny Boyle. So, First up, Monica writes, uh, Hi, I was so excited to listen to your latest review because it is one of my favorite episodes of The Twilight Zone. She's referring to The Trouble with Templeton. I was surprised you didn't like it and even more surprised you didn't mention the best scene of the whole episode when Booth leaves and the room stops and gets quiet and the looks on their faces as the lights dim. It gave me chills the first time I saw it. It's such a sad episode. Since you highly recommended the Tom Elliott podcast, which is the Twilight Zone podcast by Tom Elliott, I listened to his review and was happy to hear that I'm not crazy as he was right on with his review of the episode. Um, 
and yeah, and Tom Elliott, man, he is, he's phenomenal. And, uh, I also listened to his review after that and it made me, you know, I wouldn't say that it made me reconsider my thoughts on it, but it made me kind of conscious of, of the kind of bigger themes of the trouble with Templeton. And I kind of came away from it thinking, you know, I'm still a fairly young person. I would hope I'm like 31. So I kind of wonder if maybe, maybe I wouldn't necessarily say maybe it's a fault of my own, but maybe it's because I don't have that life experience, uh, that Booth Templeton does. And, uh, I kind of still feel like, you know, my best years are ahead of me. Um, I kind of wonder if that is why I couldn't connect too closely to, to the episode and maybe with a little more life experience, I'll, I'll be, it'll resonate with me more in, in like a decade or so. Um, so it was, it was an interesting, um, episode. I won't fault that in the, in the scene that Monica's referring to. Yeah, I, I did have that in my notes and I forgot to mention it, but it was a very eerie scene. Like it, it definitely left an impression on me. Um, it was, it was well executed. I, I just, at the time I was so confused and, and, um, catching up with what was going on in the episode that I was just kind of, it wasn't as effective as I, as, a as it was on subsequent viewings. And, uh, then Monica goes on to write, I was also pretty surprised that you liked the lateness of the era as much as you did, as I always thought it was just okay. And I can never not laugh when Jaina is doing her no pain thing on the stairs. Um, <laughs> anyway, just thought I'd give my thoughts. Thanks for posting the Black Mirror release date. I can't wait. Um, yeah, and you know, it is a little cheesy the way that Jaina says, no pain, no pain, and like hits herself like... And yeah, it is cheesy, a little over the top, but just the, there's something about the way that she delivers the line that you can kind of read it as over the top, which it kind of is, but also just the, um, the emotion in it. I, I still kind of latched onto that. Um, yeah. So, uh, moving on, uh, another piece of feedback from Robert, a Patreon subscriber that suggested the, uh, uh, review of Sunshine last week. Robert writes, I really enjoyed your review of Sunshine, covered all the things I love about the film, and even made me think about stuff I never thought of. For instance, it was science versus religion. What a great underrated film, great score, great cast, and great visuals for such a low-budget movie. And then he goes on to say that he has one minor criticism about it, um, but I don't really want to say it because it, it gives away some stuff about the movie. But... Suffice it to say, I did, I did respond to him and, and we, we've been emailing back and forth, um, about it and his pick for next month, which sounds really, uh, really, uh, interesting. I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. So anyway, um, uh, he said that in regards with his criticism, he said, uh, uh, you probably realized the review was running long and wanted to wrap it up. So no worries. Seriously, I could have talked about sunshine for another hour. Um, <laughs> and then he finishes up by saying, look, look forward to hearing you review some of my other favorite things. Keep up the great work. So thank you so much, Robert, for, uh, emailing me and thank you Monica for messaging me on f- uh, the Facebook page. And thank you guys for listening and everything. Um, and I really appreciate the feedback. Any seriously, I, I love getting emails about the podcast. Um, it's, it's really fantastic. I think I've mentioned it before, but like when I started Obsessive Viewer with Tiny, uh, four and a half years ago, like we don't, we didn't get as much feedback or anything, or we, we never really got emails or anything, but then 
as soon as I started anthology, since it's a niche topic and everything, I've I've been getting emails each week and everything. It's just such it's so gratifying to get an email about about uh, the podcast because that's what podcasting is for me is an outlet for my uh, my passions and to to have a dialogue with people. And then also, um, since it's a solo podcast, I kind of crave that kind of uh, feedback. So feel free to email me or message me and, and tweet me and everything. Which, by the way, follow me on Twitter at ov anthology pod. So, uh, moving on, uh, before I get to, uh, last thing before I get to the, uh, to the review and everything, um, on to Wednesday of this week, I believe, which was the 20, no, not 20, what am I thinking? Um, on a December 6th, I believe it was December 6th, is when kind of news broke about a couple big things. So, first of all, I just want to mention that, uh, the Twilight Zone reboot from uh, Jordan Peele's production company is has officially been greenlit by CBS for CBS All Access. Now, what that means is that essentially a couple weeks ago when I talked about the uh, news that broke about it, basically what had happened then was that Les Moonves had um, mentioned it in an earnings call with, with uh, the investors for, for CBS. So he had mentioned it kind of casually saying that, they're going to be rebooting the Twilight Zone for CBS All Access. So now this news that came out Wednesday is that they have officially announced that they are um, ordering it to series, which means that they are going to give it a season of of television on CBS All Access, and it has officially been greenlit and ready to go. So now, obviously, there's it's probably not going to be. I would, I would just assume that it would be a very a very long, um, uh, how to phrase it? It would be a very uh, optimistic thing to think that we would get the new Twilight Zone in 2018. I would really guess that it would probably be early 2019. They haven't announced anything about when, but this is essentially they're ordering it, so now they've got to hire everyone and and go into production and everything and then all that. So that is crazy exciting because... I started this podcast two, two and a half years ago. I don't even remember. Um, kind of on a whim in the lead up to it. I had been toying with it for a long time. I would make notes in my, in my phone just saying like, Oh, this is, this is a, this is an angle I could do with the Twilight Zone, uh, podcast since I've never, since I've never watched the show. And then it kind of just grew into what the podcast is now. At that time, I had no idea that, we were going to have so much science fiction anthology television to play with. At the time, I didn't consider, I don't think I considered doing a Black Mirror bonus review series. And then when I did that, when I, when I kind of, uh, I was so excited about the Netflix season of Black Mirror that I just was like, I'm just going to review it on anthology. And then I have Dimension 404 and Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams. And then now the new Twilight Zone. It's like, this is this is crazy, and I'm so excited to have a platform to kind of go through all of this media and uh, and discuss it and and review it. And so, anyway, going back to the news about the Twilight Zone, 
Jordan Peele um, in, in a statement said that, quote, too many times this year it's felt we were living in a twilight zone and I can't think of a better moment to reintroduce it to modern audiences. And yeah, first of all, I agree with that. It's been just a crazy year, couple of years really. And I'm really excited to see what he and his team and, and what everyone involved with the show is going to do with it. Because I think that if they do it right, there is there is a way to to recapture at least a a portion of the magic that Serling had in, in between nineteen fifty nine and nineteen sixty four. And I think that there is a very real chance that this could be a very good um a very good adaptation and a very good re reboot. Um, obviously it could also be a disaster. <laughs> There's really no telling at this point, but I'm optimistic because we need more commentary on crazy things in the world. And black mirror, while it does have this propulsion to it, that, that our culture has said like, Oh, this is like the new twilight zone. And it is to an extent, but Black Mirror is kind of more more geared toward the technology side of it, our our kind of dependency on technology and, and how it affects our emotions and, and how we interact with people in our, our society and everything. To have a more um, exact reboot of The Twilight Zone, that could be a more like an all-encompassing uh, thing about our culture and about the state of the world and everything without having to rely on like, oh – phones but worse um or phones but crazy or whatever the whatever the phrase is for black mirror but anyway final thing about the twilight zone reboot is that someone on reddit had said that it needs to be black and white like it needs to be shot in black and white because that's the one thing that people who have remade twilight zone in the past don't really get is that so much of the magic of the original series was that it was it was in black and white because of the time and and if they want to recapture it the the best way to do that would be to film it in black and white. Um, I mean that's kind of a kind of a kind of a general thing. Um, I mean it, it's possible, but um, I think it would be cool to have it be shot in black and white. Um, it would be a very interesting artistic choice. I don't know if it would. Above all else, I think the content is what needs to speak for. The scripts need to be like very well realized and everything rather than just an aesthetic um, piece of uh, cinematography to, to recapture it. So anyway, um, I'll be talking more about that as news un unravels about it uh, in the coming months or however long. Um, and I look forward to having even more stuff to talk about on Anthology. And then final piece of news is that I mentioned this last week that Black Mirror has been doing the, that had been doing their 13 days of Black Mirror um, promotion thing. And they finally, finally, finally released the, uh, announced the release date for season four. So season four is officially going to, to drop on Netflix globally on December 29th. And I am so excited and I am going to hope to get as much recording done ahead of that so that I can double up and do bonus review series because in the back of my head with the Dimension 404 reviews, it's like that took months and now I have Black Mirror coming out in three weeks and then a couple of weeks after that I have uh, Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams. So 
it's going to be a crazy busy few months here on Anthology, and I really, really hope that I can catch up with it or I can, I can stay current with it. But knowing my track record, there could be some lulls here and there. But anyway, I'm going to try my best. I did actually um, contact Netflix's like media services and also Amazon Primes just to just to see just to say like, hey, I have this podcast. Can I get screamers? Uh, not screamers, but screeners of Black Mirror and uh, Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams, just so I can release it on in a timely fashion. So I did that last night on a whim. Who knows if I'll get any response because I'm just a small podcast. Uh, so who knows if they'll take me seriously. So that does it for news and feedback and all that. Uh, that was a lot, but it's been a big week, and uh, I appreciate your patience on that. So let's get into a most unusual camera. And I'm going to start out, as I usually do, by reading a plot description, courtesy of Twilight Zone Unlocking a Door, Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic by Martin Grahams Jr., and of course, of course, all of the review and uh, plot description, everything that is going to be completely spoiler filled. So you will be spoiled on a most unusual camera. So if you haven't watched it yet, go back and check it out and then uh, come back and listen to the review. So, all right. So having said that, here's the plot description according to Twilight Zone, unlocking the door to a television classic. After taking inventory of a recent loot from a victimized curio shop, three small-time heisters find themselves in position in possession of a funky-looking camera. A short time later, Chester realizes why the original owners never reported the camera among the list of stolen possessions. The camera is unique because it takes pictures of the near future. Hours later, Chester, Chester Paula and Woodward use the camera to take pictures of the winning board of the racetrack and place bets of the soon to be winning horse. By the end of the day, the crooks find themselves with more money than they would have earned heisting mom and pop shops. When the French inscription on the camera is deciphered as tend to a customer, the small town crooks start to panic because they already used up eight photos. During a struggle over deciding what to do with the remaining, remaining pictures, Woodward and Chester waste another photo. Fighting over their mistake, they fall out the window to their deaths. A blackmailing French waiter at the hotel begins stealing the money from Paula, only to plunge to his death out the same window, as does Paula as predicted on the final photograph. And uh, first of all, the actual inscription says tend to an owner, but that's neither here nor there. Um, so starring in this episode as Chester Dietrich is Fred Clark. And this was his only episode, the twilight zone and his only, uh, collaboration with Rod Serling. Uh, he had served as a Navy pilot in 1942, but later joined the army and spent nearly two years with the third army in Europe, which I think was, um, under George Patton, um, I believe so. Uh, and then he got this role in the Twilight Zone after just a chance meeting with Serling at a restaurant one afternoon. Um, so that's kind of interesting. And Jean Carson plays Paula Dietrich. Uh, this is her only Twilight Zone and only Serling collaboration. And she had never really aspired to be a leading lady, just citing her strange voice. And she was perfectly okay with being a second, a quote, second tomato because she could work regularly. Okay, my cat is kind of crawling all on me. Hi, honey. Okay, my cat's laying on me. All right, that's fine. And then rounding out the cast is Adam Williams as Woodward. This is his second and final Twilight Zone appearance. He previously played the sailor in the episode The Hitchhiker. Um, 
and he also appeared in 1956's The the Rack, which was written by Serling, which was about a dedicated uh, Korean War hero inexplicably collaborating with the enemy while interred in a POW camp and is court-martialed because of it. Um, I've, I'd seen that just in my random searches of, of Serling and past episodes and stuff. Um, and that, uh, that, uh, I think it was a TV movie is very interesting to me. And I hope to eventually, uh, cover it if I can find it. I don't believe it's on YouTube. Um, but hopefully I can get my hands on it some in one way or another. Okay. And writer for this episode was Rod Serling. And he originally finished the first draft of the script back in April of 1959, originally having it, uh, uh, written for season one and CBS had given him a few notes, um, uh, a few, a few notes that he, that he corrected and, and obliged them on. And then Robert Stevens was even slated to direct the episode in season one, but the script was eventually shelved and ultimately, uh, just revisited for season two, obviously. Um, and let's see a couple other things about it. Um, there was originally a scene in the antique store, um, but since the studio was squeezing the production to save money at the time, he ended up cutting the scene, which I think was a smart choice because the newspaper insert and everything, that's, that's, I think that's, that's, uh, an adequate way to bring us into the story. If only because it gives us the, it gives us more time with the characters that are going to be at the center of the story in a, in a, a good way to establish them without having to do the whole backstory and everything of the antique store. And then finally, uh, Serling had seen Gene, uh, Carson in a stage play and like had, had met her at a party and said that he had a role for her, um, referring to this role, of course, and that he would contact her. Of course it was shelved after, uh, it was shelved after the notes and everything. So, uh, a, uh, a while later, um, his agent called her when they, when they were doing this script for season two. Um, so that, that's nice that he kind of kept his word on that. And director for this episode was John Rich. This is his first of two episodes. Next is season five. And the episode was titled in season five for a, a kind of stopwatch, which, um, of course I don't know. <sighs> anything about the Twilight Zone going forward after this point. So I kind of think it's funny that he directed two episodes. One is called a most unusual camera and another is called a kind of stopwatch. So I kind of wonder if they have any kind of thematic elements that are tied together or any kind of, um, similarities other than the title. Um, and I wonder if that's why John Rich was brought back for that, but we'll find that out in a long time when I get to season five. And uh, John Rich is best known as the Emmy Award-winning director of All in the Family and The Dick Van Dyke Show. Um, so that's a bit of interesting trivia. And now I'm going to go on to my feelings as a first-time viewer of this episode. Um, what I knew before the episode was nothing. Um, the title made me think of the Goosebumps book, uh, Say Cheese and Die, and uh, which the Goosebumps series was a seminal piece of literature from my childhood. And, um, having seen the episode, having seen this, this episode now, it's very clear that R.L. Stein, uh, was, uh, inspired by it for, for his, uh, uh, Goosebumps book of Say Cheese and Die. Okay. So immediately this episode brings us into the perspective of the thieves of an antique shop. Um, 
And, you know, I mentioned when I, when I mentioned Serling writing the episode that it was originally going to open with a scene at the, at the shop with the proprietors of the shop basically outlining what was missing and, and reporting the crime. And like I said a few minutes ago, I really liked that this, I really like this alternative just because it introduces us to the dynamic of Paula and Chester. Chester is the, obviously the husband and she's the wife. So we get a quick introduction to their dynamic and how they operate essentially. And it's immediately clear right from the outset that this is a, um, <laughs> this is a very lighthearted comedic focused episode of the twilight zone, which, you know, <sighs> At the time that I watched this, it felt kind of welcome. It was um, kind of a cheeky, uh, fun, laid-back episode. It wasn't uh, intense, or, or it didn't it didn't make me nervous or anything. It was just kind of a fun ride. Um, yeah, and uh, and then one other thing that I noticed kind of immediately was that the opening narration is kind of quick in this episode. Lately, we've been having several minutes of, of character interactions before getting introduced to Serling's narrations. But this comes pretty quick in the episode, and I kind of liked that. Um, what I did really like about uh, the narration itself was that the way that it was shot. So the opening narration, he's in the hotel room with uh, Paula and Chester, and he's in front of a mirror which shows them – not not sitting completely still, but just doing their own thing. Like she's reading the newspaper and I don't remember what Chester's doing. He's looking at the camera or looking at something and they're just kind of stationary. And I kind of liked that because there was a little bit of an intrusive kind of feel to it. Um, Serling was just commenting on the events that we're about to see and why, like while we can see that they are within earshot. And it's just, it was just kind of a cool, like, effective way to uh, introduce the episode, having Serling tell us that this camera is going to um, uh, gonna affect the lives of three people. And then we see two of the people just like there as he's saying it with an earshot. It's just, it was a kind of a cool way to introduce the episode. It made me curious who the third person was going to be, which I will talk about, I'm sure. So, um, also, uh, last thing about the opening narration is that I love the closing line where Sterling says that pictures taken by this camera can only be developed in the Twilight Zone. I just, I just liked that, uh, incorporation of the Twilight Zone into it, which is something he does every episode, um, and seems really clever to me. Um, so I want to kind of single out Fred Clark's performance first in this opening scene, because he is kind of a huge delight in this episode. Um, he has, there's, there's just something really magnetic about his performance. He is the, uh, kind of de facto leader of the, of the group of thieves throughout the episode. And he's, it's hard to describe because the episode itself is played for comedy and the thieves themselves are kind of buffoons, but Fred Clark's Chester, he's, since he's the leader of, of the crew, he's kind of got this slight edge over the other two in the sense of intelligence and everything. Um, he's still kind of buffoonish himself, but he has this kind of, uh, 
authoritative presence that he's like his buffoonery overrides Paula's and the soon to be introduced Woodward's. And when they're looking at the camera and everything, uh, first of all, I love just the casual reference of the foreign writing that's on the front. Um, because it's just, it's just a general remark that comes into play later in the episode and is, uh, is actually of really big importance. And it just kind of, I, I like the way that it's just casually referenced to us. It's not, it's not a big deal. It's not a big mystery throughout the episode. It's just casually mentioned at the top. And, um, one thing that I, I did notice, uh, millennial that I am is that as soon as he takes the picture and then it develops and everything, I just thought it's like a Polaroid. And then I wondered if the episode itself predated Polaroids and I did a cursory Google search and it looks like instant cameras like that were, uh, first developed in, I think 1948 apparently. So it wasn't anything prescient that I could find. So that's, that's fine. Um, so Chester takes a picture of Paula standing by the window, which the window obviously comes into play a lot, uh, later in the episode and windows themselves, to, uh, play a big role in the twilight zone themselves itself overall. But, um, one thing I just, it just kind of bugged me about, uh, Jean Carson's performance is that it wasn't necessarily her performance really. It was more the script. Um, just Chester takes a picture of her and then the picture shows her in a fur coat. And like, I don't know, it just rubbed me the wrong way that like, it took so much to make Paula realize that she's wearing a big fur coat in the picture that she just took like four, five minutes ago. And I don't know. It was, it was a little bit ridiculous to me. Like Chester has her stand in front of the mirror and then look at it and then it takes her like a few beats to, to really like realize, Oh my God, I'm wearing a fur coat. I've never had a fur coat. It just kind of, I don't know. It, it was, it stretched my suspension of disbelief just a little bit. And then, uh, Chester's kind of rationalization of what the, what the photo is and what the camera is after that. It's really, it's, it's really strong. And I think it's kind of in, in, uh, Fred Clark's performance because, he talks about how like he immediately thinks he doesn't immediately think that it's anything supernatural. He just thinks, Oh, it's a gag camera. They have pictures developed in it. When, when you take a photo, it just takes a photo of the head and then attaches it to it. And that's, that's it. And I'm like, okay, well that makes a lot of sense. Like I, that I followed the logic really well in that. And, um, at that point, I I kind of realized like the episode's kind of taking its time to develop the story here, and I and I liked it because I kind of liked living in this world with these with these characters as kind of silly and and uh, buffoonish as they are. Um, they were kind of delightful a, a little bit. Um, it was kind of fun just seeing them bicker back and forth. And so later that night in the hotel room, they are talking. Um, about it. They had the twin beds, um, that I've referenced before. And Paula is asking him why he, why he, he hasn't gone to bed. And he's just kind of fascinated by the camera. And then that's the introduction of Woodward is that they take the, take a photo of the door. And then her brother who is incarcerated shows up within five minutes. And, uh, right before that, uh, Chester kind of comes to, comes to terms with it and says that it could be, um, the work of witches or black magic or sorcery or anything. And then 
Paula says like, where's the man with the horns who comes with a bargain for the soul? And I kind of, I liked that because that kind of subverts our expectations or maybe not subverts our expectations, but kind of plays with what we've seen in the twilight zone before. And what's kind of maybe, maybe not at this point. Um, but overall it's kind of tropish in general, like, Oh, the deal with the devil kind of thing. Um, so I like that it's, it calls attention to that and shows us that it's not going to be that type of story. And, and I like that, uh, Chester's suggestions about what it, what it could be. That's all the backstory we get on the camera. And that's all that we need because he says that it could be the work of witches or black magic. And I like that those possible explanations are just adding kind of color to the episode while also giving us nothing about the actual background of the camera. I I like that. I like that we didn't get any information, but we have these ideas that are suggested in a kind of somewhat silly and entertaining way. And so we get introduced to, to Woodward, which I'm just going to come out and say it. I enjoyed, um, I really enjoyed, uh, Adam Williams's performance in the hitchhiker a lot more than in this one. Cause while they are all kind of buffoons and everything, um, Woodward is just a little too dopey and, and dumb for me. Like at the act break, uh, when he comes in and he sees the picture, he's kind of, there's like this, uh, there's like this, uh, tone to his voice. That's kind of like, Oh geez. Uh, Oh, oh, oh yeah, I'll watch TV. It's it's kind of it's a little too like it's a, it's a little distracting for me. And like when he when he sees the picture, he's like he's kind of has this this just blank expression on his face, and he's like, "What? How come?" And it's just like I I don't know. I I I just don't know. It just it just rubbed me the wrong way. And he's kind of treated as kind of like a child. Like later in the episode when Paula asks him if he's done with a snack, he's like, "Yeah, that'll that'll uh hold me over till dinner." And then earlier than that when when uh he's when Chester asks him if he wants to see something on TV, he's just he's kind of a childlike presence and I I don't know, it just kind of it kind of didn't work for me uh in a in a comedic way. And so we're brought into the second act and they're kind of debating on how they can use the camera. And, um, and I like that because at that point in my first viewing, I had no idea how they could use it to their advantage. I hadn't thought of the horse races. And the reason is that when I was watching this episode, all I was thinking, it was like, how can they use this to their advantage? If the picture is only five minutes in the future, because that's such a finite amount of time that I didn't know how they could use it to their advantage. Um, and I, and I kind of really was charmed by Chester's, um, uh, his whole thing about wanting to turn the camera over to science and, uh, use it to pay back humanity and, and, uh, give it as a gift for humanity and everything. And I love the way that the script, uh, plays with that because you have Paula saying like, what's humanity ever done for us? And then he's still like, he's telling her like, well, imagine what medical science, science can do with this, which honestly, I mean, it's a camera that takes a picture five minutes of what's going to come in five minutes in the future. I have no idea how medical science could use that to their advantage in any way. (laughs) I, I really don't. Um, if you have any idea of how 
like medical science and and the scientific community could use the camera's uh power to their advantage let me know because i'm very curious i guess well i guess the test results of of different uh scientific experiments i guess so that cuts down on that but i don't know it just seemed kind of kind of silly but i mean i get i get it like you know turn it over to science so they can reverse engineer it or, or look into it yeah obviously but just the idea of a bunch of scientists like well i don't i don't know what the hell to do with this um is just kind of kind of funny to me um, but anyway, so I like that Chester has this whole, um, noble, uh, noble thing with it. And then as soon as he sees the horse race on TV, he's like, oh no, wait, let's use this to cheat. And let's, let's use this for money, our own personal gain. And, uh, I just, I love that. And then when they're leaving, when they're, okay. So when they're getting ready to leave and like Chester's telling Woodward, like, go get one of my shirts and then make sure you wear a tie. And then as he walks off this, off the screen, he, uh, uh, Chester's putting on the jacket and then he's like, wait, how much money do we have? And then they're kind of going through their money. And then again, this, this other line just kind of bugged me where he's like, all right, 10, I have, I have 30 and she's, or I have 20. And then, uh, Paula has 10 and then he's like, okay, that's 30. And then she's like, I know it's 30. It's like that that seemed a little, a little too, uh, like it, like it was trying a little too hard to be cute. Um, but anyway, I was really feeling the comedic, uh, energy of the episode as they're kind of bustling out the door. And then Paula's like, wait, Chuck, what about humanity? Or I think, I think maybe Woodward says that. And then he says, I, I love the kind of, uh, callback to a few minutes earlier when, uh, Chester's just like humanity. What did humanity ever do for us? I, I love that. Like that sequence kind of almost felt like it could have been kind of back, uh, a backdoor pilot for another series. Um, like, I mean, I mean, obviously given the, given the ending of the episode, there's no way that this could have been, but I would have liked to see more stories with these two or these three characters, even though I wasn't too fond of Woodward as a character, like, and, and, Gene Carson's performance, I kind of like, they have, uh, such a, f uh, a fun energy to them and a good sense of comedic timing that I feel like they could have, they could have worked well together in, in a series, like an episode to episode kind of thing in their own standalone series. Um, it's a shame we, we didn't get that. I don't know if that was ever any, I doubt that it was anything that would be, um, suggested or anything, but in another universe, I think it could have been, could have been kind of fun to see them play with more, um, hijinks and everything. So they go to the racetrack and they, <laughs> they end up with a ton of money. Like I was kind of super jealous, but, um, like after the first race, when he, when Chester comes back and he's like, we have $9,500. All I thought was, man, $9,500 in 1960, that's, that's unreal. Like I, I like that is, uh, I can't, I don't, I, I didn't check to see how much it would be like in today's money, but man, 9,500 in 1960. That's, that's insane. Um, and my next note was I want this camera so much. <laughs> um, and then after they get back to the hotel and the waiter comes in, a couple things about that. One is I love how stupid they are because they are just openly counting all the money. Like I immediately thought like, man, at least make an effort to hide your winnings and everything and hide your money. And I was so delighted that it came back to play, uh, later in, or in a couple scenes later. 
but um i i i really liked the reveal that there was only 10 pictures to an owner um on the camera and like that was such an interesting wrinkle so late in the episode and like it made me like mentally think like i wonder how many pictures they've taken and when they deduce that they've taken six picture or eight pictures and they only have two left i just i loved that because it shifts the episode a little bit and i also like that the the way that they're arguing and and passing the camera back and forth they accidentally take the ninth picture um it made me think that she was going to die so i was pretty surprised when they both fell out the window and, and it was Chester and Woodward that, that ended up dying. And, um, <laughs> and then this was the part where Jean Carson kind of shined for me. Um, because she's, she's immediately like, Oh, I'm so sad. Like every, I have nothing to live for and everything. And uh, now my brother and my husband are both dead. And then she's like kind of taking the money and she's like, well, you know, live on, move on. Let's, let's just move on. <laughs> And, uh, you know, we have to move on with our lives and everything. I just, I love that quick turn there. And then, so I thought it was kind of weird that she took a picture of the bodies on the ground. Like she, she used the last picture on the camera to take a picture of her dead husband and dead brother. She says it's for, for, uh, wow, for, uh, posterity. And all I thought was you were just, just um arguing that you should save the last two pictures at the time for a rainy day and then now you're suddenly just taking a picture of dead bodies like it it didn't compute to me and uh it felt so much like the like just the the plot needed it and, and i mean the plot did need it but it kind of felt a little bit a little bit silly um that she would just just w- immediately waste the last picture on something that was nothing for her personal gain it was just strictly plot uh, plot necessitated. Um, and so then the waiter comes back in and I didn't look up who he is or where he's, where he's from or anything, but I mean, the accent was fine. I I didn't think he did a bad job with it or anything. Uh, the script does have him say a couple of times. Um, he says how you say, which just feels like such a, such a, um, classic kind of like, foreign character with broken English that it's, it kind of seems like a, like a script writing crutch a little bit. Um, but that's just, that's just, it wasn't anything that detracted from the episode. It's just something that, uh, went off in my mind. So the finale of the episode is that the waiter is stealing the money and he's kind of gotten the upper hand over, over, uh, over the thieves and everything. He's looked into them. They're both, they're all wanted. Uh, Chester and Woodward have both died. So he's just like, yeah, I'm here to uh, steal your money. And I love the confidence and and cockiness of, of him in that, uh, in that scene. And, uh, but the ending, the, uh, she, she falls out the window after he tells her that, uh, there are, there are more than two bodies in the, in the photo. And like, that was okay. I like that. She trips over the, over the cord and falls out the window when she goes to look. And I, I liked that. I thought that was, that was cool. But then, then the waiter follows. He, like, he looks at the picture and it's kind of similar to, uh, to Paulo with the fur coat. 
earlier in the episode. Like he looks at the picture and he's like, wait, one, two, three, there's four bodies. <laughs> and then he drops the camera and then the film camera like points at the most unusual camera and you hear him fall out the window. It doesn't make, I like, I don't know how he fell out. Like, I don't know what caused him to fall out the window or, or anything. It just felt like, it felt like it was a, like, this is how we should end the episode. Um, so that, that kind of like, it could have been, I would have liked to have seen like the last picture, like I, instead of being told what it was, maybe the last scene of the move or last scene of the episode would have been just a still frame of the, of the picture. And then maybe have a more, um, a more, uh, interesting or more, um, connected way to, um, what's the word I'm looking for? The, a more logical way for him to, to die. But I don't know. It, it was a fun episode though. And so, yeah. So overall, I thought that a most unusual camera was a fun, like lighthearted episode. Um, I kind of equate it to, um, Mr. Beavis, but good. <laughs> Mr. Beavis was another lighthearted episode that didn't really connect that well. Um, and then this episode had its faults, but I think it rested on the, um, or relied on the, uh, chemistry of the main characters and the energy, particularly of, of Fred Clark's performance. Cause he was, he was, a st- he was outstanding. And, uh, I just, I just liked the hijinks of this better. So it, it, similar in style and similar in tone to Mr. Beavis, but much better executed in my opinion, even though it has its own faults with the ending and, and some of the, uh, kind of plot convenient character moments, uh, sprinkled in here and there. But overall, it was a fun episode and, uh, I don't think it'll make my top 10 list or anything for episodes from season two or anything like that, but, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a chore to rewatch it. It was, it was a fun, it was a fun episode that I, uh, I enjoyed. And so I don't really have much trivia for this episode or really any trivia for this episode, aside from what I've already said in the, uh, uh, um, cast and crew breakdown and everything. Um, so yeah, I mean, like I said, R.L. Stein took uh, his imp- in, uh, inspiration for the plot of the novel "Say Cheese and Die" from the Goosebump series for this, and I know "Say Cheese and Die" had a, it was one of the popular Goosebump books. There was a few sequels to it, I believe, and it was one of the stories that was adapted for the Goosebumps TV series. And then also uh, there was an episode of Futurama uh, called "The Thief of Baghead." Um, that, um, <laughs> that, uh, references this episode. Um, there is, there's a, uh, a great shirt on T public. That's, uh, it's the, it's the doorway, um, logo for the twilight zone. And it just says the scary door, which is the name of the twilight zone show in Futurama. Um, I really want to get that shirt, but anyway, um, in the episode, the thief of baghead, um, Bender owns a camera that he refers to as his twilight zone lens, uh, that takes photographs one minute into the future. So, um, I haven't gotten to that episode yet, but, of Futurama, but I'm slowly, slowly working my way through Futurama. Um, eventually I'll, I'll get through all of it. 
So that's my review of a most unusual camera. And of course, before we move on to this week's bonus review, I'm going to play a little highlight from a recent episode of Tower Junkies, which is a podcast discussing Stephen King and the Dark Tower series. I host over at obsessiveviewer.com and at towerjunkiespod.com. Um, it was kind of haunting to read it now, knowing that in 1999, Stephen King was himself hit by a, hit by a car. Um, so that was kind of a, a, of an interesting, it made it, made for kind of a chilling read. You can find Tower Junkies Pod on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at towerjunkiespod.com. And you can find all of my podcasting at obsessiveviewer.com slash podcasts. All right, and this week's bonus review is the 2014 uh, sci-fi independent movie Time Lapse, which was directed by Bradley King and written by Bradley King and co-written by B.P. Cooper. And it stars Danielle Panabaker, Matt O'Leary, and George Finn. Uh, I watched this movie um, after renting it on the Google Play Store. So it's, so it's not available to stream anywhere. I believe at one time it was streaming on Amazon Prime, so maybe it'll go back onto Amazon Prime, but, um, it was worth, it was well worth the $3 rental. I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, the IMDb summary is three friends discover a mysterious machine that takes pictures 24 hours into the future and conspire to use it for personal gain until disturbing and dangerous images begin to develop. Um, so it is a very similar plot to a most unusual camera. There's three main characters. There's a camera that takes photographs in the future and they use that for personal gain. Um, there are some very big differences though. Um, the camera takes pictures 24 hours in advance and the camera itself is a giant machine <laughs> that's in their neighbor's, uh, uh, apartment that has just a, uh, a view of their, uh, living room. So that's, that's the only way that the camera and the camera kind of automatically takes the photos. So it's an interesting, it's a very interesting change or a very interesting wrinkle to the story. It's a stationary device that automatically takes a photograph every 24 hours of a, of one location. And what I liked about that is that there are a lot of times where the characters kind of have to, replicate what the photo is. Eventually it comes to a point where they are kind of, um, at the mercy of it. They, they kind of feel compelled to like, okay, well they now have knowledge that in 24 hours, the three of them are going to be sitting on the couch. So in 24 hours, they have to be sitting on the couch. And that, that alone is a very interesting, that's, that's what makes this type of story very interesting to me and fascinating. Cause it's this question of, Okay, we as humans have free will. We are in we we have free will to do whatever we want. But when we are at the mercy of something that takes away that free will, that's when we like it's interesting to see how characters interact and how characters um react to situations like that. And the photographs that are taken in this in this movie uh, they obviously they kind of escalate from the first to to the last, and there's some really clever clever like wrinkles to it that I was I was very much uh, impressed with how it worked out. The movie itself kind of reminded me a little bit of the of another kind of independent um, time travel movie, uh, Primer, which is a movie that I need to see again. That it's a very kind of my memory of it is that it's a very convoluted. 
um, mind trippy kind of movie, but, uh, time lapse is a much more straightforward story and the cleverness is it, like, it's still a clever time travel story, but it's not anything that makes your head like throb with a headache about trying to figure out what it is. Um, so when I was watching this, this is almost immediately after first seeing a most unusual camera. All I thought was, okay, um, hypothetically, if you are given this power, this device where you can see where you, a photograph can be taken 24 hours in advance and you have control over that, um, why wouldn't you use that for personal gain? Like who on the planet would not use that? to benefit. Like I, I mean, I would in a heartbeat. Um, honestly, like just the thought of like, okay, all my bills could be paid for a year. If I just put a newspaper clipping on the window of my apartment, like, yeah, um, I'm going to do that 100%. Um, so the three characters are, there's, there's Finn. He's an aspiring painter and he's kind of the, uh, uh, the manager of the entire kind of property. He's a property manager, so he has to go. There's, there's actually a really great scene at the beginning where he is get like a, one of the tenants calls him to unclog her toilet. And this is after it's established that he is, um, he's a struggling artist. Like he's, he has this creative block where he can't paint anything. And so when he is unclogging this toilet, <laughs> after having this tense session where he's trying to paint, but can't like the creative juices aren't flowing as he's unclogging the toilet. The tenant is talking about like how like, Oh yeah, my nephew or something um, wants to be a painter. And I, and I told him, Oh yeah, my, uh, my uh, maintenance man uh, used to be a painter or something. It's just like, that is just painful like that. That's a really great, uh, scene in the movie. Um, so that's, that's Finn. He's one of the main characters. And then his girlfriend is, um, Callie, uh, played by Danielle Panabaker. And she's kind of a, an aspiring writer, um, from the, from the sound of it, or not from the sound of it. I've, I've, I've seen the movie, I promise. Um, she's an aspiring, uh, writer and she is, uh, um, I don't want to say like mother hen to the, to the trio or anything because they all live in the same apartment, but she is kind of, uh, I don't know. She, she's the girlfriend of, of Finn. Uh, I'll say that because there's, there's some stuff I could say that could go into spoilers, but, um, I won't obviously. And then finally rounding out the cast is, uh, the character of, uh, Jasper played by George Finn. And he is this kind of, uh, sleazy kind of like semi drug pusher gambling guy. Like he, he has, uh, he has kind of a gambling problem. So then he's kind of the crux for using the camera for personal gain. Um, and yeah, so, so that's, that's kind of the setup and I won't go into too much detail, but the movie, um, I really enjoyed the pacing of it. Um, because they, it's immediately established like what the camera does and, and what the camera can do and how they need to react to it. And there, it's immediately kind of, kind of, uh, there's very, there's a very immediate and clear, um, indication of why they need to be in each picture. So they become kind of trapped by it and, and, and wrapped up in it. And it becomes this thing where they need to make sure that they get into place for the picture and everything. And it's just that, that alone is a very interesting concept to me. And then some of the photos are just like 
kind of mind-boggling and, and and kind of a kind of a screw head um head screwy kind of thing and i just really like the way that it's uh the way that the plot unfolds and then there are of course kind of uh some other uh dramatic things that come up like there's some stuff with uh Jasper's bookie and and a henchman and everything and the whole fact that they need to keep this secret and and everything the whole movie comes together in a really unique and uh and really um satisfying way because if you're a fan of time travel movies you kind of know that they need to kind of come together in in a way that makes logical sense within the confines of the confines and constraints of the of the um rules of the time travel in the movie and while some of the elements of this uh movie that like there some of the rules are kind of amended here and there but um but it's still a really satisfying uh time travel movie and a really fun uh, or a really uh impressive time travel movie considering this it's just a small independent movie and it's uh it's really really cool how how they do that how the movie was made with limited limited sets limited actors and uh just pure uh cleverness of, of screenwriting and everything. Um, so if you're a fan of time travel, if you're a fan of the a most unusual camera, I think you'll get a lot out of time lapse. Like I said, it's available on Google play. I'm sure you can rent it on iTunes or Amazon or anywhere else you rent, uh, movies. And yeah, so that's my review of time lapse and that's episode 43 of anthology. Um, hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you've heard and you want to help support the show, the easiest way to do that is by leaving a rating and review on iTunes. We still have a couple weeks left of the promotion for um, a free anthology shirt. So just take a picture or take a screenshot of the iTunes review, send it to me in an email at matt at obsessiveviewer.com and you'll be entered into win a free anthology t-shirt. And you can also donate to the podcast through PayPal by link, by clicking the donate button on anthologypod.com or you can do recurring donations through Patreon at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. And Patreon just recently changed their payout, um, way. It's kind of very angry, <laughs> anger inducing because essentially now they're putting service charges on the patrons, um, so that the creators can get, can get a more steady, income and everything, which I think is kind of crappy of them to do. So, um, so like, like right now, Robert has a $10, um, patron, uh, patronage with me or, or whatever. Um, <laughs> uh, he backs me for 10 bucks a month. So now his card is going to be charged $10 and some odd cents because the service charge is going to fall on him. I think that's pretty shady. So, um, so if you are interested in being a patron and that's turning you away, feel free to just do that through PayPal um, and just send send the money directly to me on on PayPal and uh, using the link on the website. And, uh, and if you want to use it for a reward tier for the month on Patreon, just send me a message or anything. And Robert, for you as well, I'll email you as well. But um, if you want to use PayPal instead, I don't know how PayPal works with the service charges and everything, but I know that I, I get the, I don't, I don't know. We'll figure it out. So anyway, that's all that. Uh, that's this week's episode. 
Thank you guys so much for listening. Next week, I'm super excited because next week I'm reviewing The Night of the Meek, which is the 11th episode of the Twilight Zone's second season. And the bonus review is going to be the remake of of The Night of the Meek, titled just Night of the Meek, um, from the 1985 revival of The Twilight Zone. And I'm really excited for that because... I started this podcast a couple years ago and I've had a lot of, a lot of kind of gaps in releasing and everything and, uh, some stretches where I didn't. And somehow through the grace of, of <laughs> just pure coincidence, I have managed to reach the Twilight Zones one and only like official Christmas episode. And I am in line to release it a week before Christmas. And I think that that's kind of cool. So I'm excited to talk about the Night of the Meek next week. And then, uh, yeah. And then before you know it, we're going to be reviewing Black Mirror and Electric Dreams and whatever other science fiction anthology shows come up, um, which we're kind of in a sci-fi anthology renaissance sort of sort of thing which is very welcome um but it's going to do wonders for my vocal cords (laughs) so yeah without further ado thank you guys so much for listening and i'll see you next time thank you for listening to anthology presented by obsessiveviewer.com For more of Anthology and a full archive of my episodes, go to anthologypod.com. And if you want to help support the show, the easiest way you can do that is by leaving a rating and a review on iTunes. You can also make donations to the show courtesy of the donate link in the show notes of each episode and on anthologypod.com. For recurring donations, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer and just choose one of the Anthology reward tiers. If you enjoy Anthology, feel free to check out The Obsessive Viewer, a weekly movie and TV podcast I host with my friend Tiny and occasional guest co-hosts over at ObsessiveViewer.com. You can also join The Obsessive Viewer Facebook group at Facebook.com slash TheObsessiveViewer. For book reviews and commentary on the world of reading, check out our sister site at ObsessiveBookNerd.com. And for philosophical discussions from a secular viewpoint, check out my friends Chad and Amanda at thesecularperspective.com. Finally, if you'd like to contact me with your thoughts on the show, my reviews, my bonus reviews, or for any other reason, you can tweet me at ObsessiveViewer, send me an email at matt at ObsessiveViewer.com, or send me a message on Facebook and like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod. Once again, thank you guys so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.